You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 71. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Our guest on today's show is Sarah Chin, a master's student at Sonoma State University who is studying one of our most charismatic marine mammal species, the sea otter. Sarah recently published a scientific paper about a newly identified disease that is contributing to sea otter mortality called end lactation syndrome. I talked with her about the impact this condition is having on sea otter populations and why the species is so important to coastal ecosystems. Let's jump in. All right, I'm here with Sarah Chin, who is a master's student at Sonoma State University. Uh, How are you, Sarah? I'm good. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm fantastic. It's great to have you on the show, and we're here to talk primarily about sea otters. So the first question I have for you is just... um, to ask you why sea otters? How did you become interested in studying this species? Uh, that's a good question. Um, you know, it's totally like a cheesy story, but you know, I, I was a kid growing up in California, um, lived by the coast, and everyone, of course, always says sea otters are so cute, and that's sort of like this big, you know, see, that's what sea otters are known for. So, of course, as a kid, I was like, yeah, they're super cute and awesome. And I did like a sixth grade book report thing on them. And, you know, they're they're way more complicated than just cute. Um, they're really neat animals um, that, you know, the fact that I can just go to the beach, um, you know, a certain part of the coastline here in California and see them readily. That's that's pretty rad. And then, you know, they're they're just really important for the the nearshore ecosystem in California and just making sure that our beaches are, are, you know, our shoreline and the intertidal are diverse and we have a lot of species. So I just thought they're a really neat animal and they've got some, some pretty cool attributes and characteristics. And in reality, they're just really big weasels that live in the ocean, which I think is also really cool. Um, yeah. And then I just started, you know, studying them a little bit in college and, and really learned that how, how important they are for the kelp forest ecosystem and, um, sort of how, even though it's, it's a little corny dream come true, I got a job as, um, a sea otter tracker a couple years ago and, and here I am now studying them. The conservation history of the Southern sea otter specifically is, is really fascinating. I mean, we're pretty lucky that this species is even still around, aren't we? Exactly. Um, In the 1700s and 1800s, um, sea otters as well as fur seals were hunted really, really, um, their numbers were hunted, you know, to really low numbers um, for their fur. So sea otters have the most dense fur of any animal on the planet, which is pretty rad. So they've got about a million hairs per square inch over, you know, certain parts of their body. And that's the most dense part. So if you can imagine like all the hair you have on the top of your head smushed into one square inch, that's what an otter's fur coat is like. So they were really, really popular um, to be made into fur coats. (laughs) So um, it started out mostly with Russian fur 
hunters and then um, and then Americans came into the fur trade. And sea otters, um, they kind of just float on the surface. They're not very deep divers. They live really close to shore. So they were pretty easy to hunt. And so by like the mid or early 1800s, sea otters were thought to be extirpated or extinct just within California. Um, and the historical range that a lot of people don't actually realize that it, it used to be a continuous range for sea otters where they ranged from northern Japan and the islands through Russia, through the Aleutian Islands, into Alaska, down the entire um, west coast of North America, so Canada, um, Washington, Oregon, California, and then down through Baja, Mexico. And now there's just um, fragments of that population left. So in 1938, um, someone, and I don't, I don't know if, anyone actually knows who it was, but there is this famous photo, and you can Google it, um, of like a raft of about 50 or 60 sea otters taken off the coast of Big Sur. And so before 1938, people thought there were no more sea otters in California. Um, and Big Sur is this really rugged, pristine portion of the central California coast. And during that time, there wasn't Highway 1 that ran through it. And, um, so not a lot of tourists, not a lot of foot traffic. So it, it was just a part of the coast that wasn't really that explored. Um, and then so uh, folks came along and they saw this this big raft of sea otters just off the coast, um, kind of around the area where Bixby Bridge is, which is a big landmark in that area. And there's this really neat photo of um, a bunch of sea otters just hanging out of the coast. So the remaining, our population of southern sea otters in California is about 3,000, just over 3,000. And so those 3,000 otters came from those 50 or 60 that were rediscovered in 1938. I mean, you mentioned there's only a few thousand southern sea otters uh, remaining off the coast of California. Um, I mean, is this population in trouble? Is, is it stable or declining? Do we know? So um, the southern sea otter population, so this is sea otters just found in California, and they range um, on the northern end at about San Mateo County around Half Moon Bay. And they go as far south um, as Santa Barbara, a little bit south of Santa Barbara, south of, um, I guess, southeast of Point Conception. Um, and so there's, a, there's just over 3,000. And um, they are listed, they're federally protected, and they are also IUCN listed as a threatened species. And the the goal number is for the population to be at 3,090 for, um, I believe it's three years in a row, in order to be petitioned to be delisted um, as a threatened species. Do we have a sense of like how that population has been doing in sort of recent history? Has it been stable over the past few decades? Yeah, so the sea otter population here, um, it's been fairly stable about the past 10 or a dozen years. Um, so before that, there was a pretty decent increase in the population numbers. And then the population kind of did a wobble up and down a little bit, decreased a little bit, increased a little bit, but didn't, but never reached, um, in, like the population never increased in rates that were expected. Um, like, for example, some populations in Alaska will increase by over 20% a year, which is sort of the maximum population growth rate. And that was expected in California. 
Um, and that never happens. Some of the higher growth rates, I think, are around maybe 10% a year. So in the past dozen years or so, population numbers have been fairly stable, just under 3,000, around 3,000. Um, and that's sort of one of the big questions now um, that we're trying to figure out, like, why hasn't the population in California increased as rapidly as other populations um, like in British Columbia or Alaska. Um, and so there's some really neat science going on now, especially down in UC Santa Cruz with USGS, um, trying to figure out that question. These sea otters, I mean, they really are a keystone species of these coastal ecosystems. Um, I mean, maybe you can just explain to us what are they doing? Like, what role are they playing in these coastal ecosystems? Sure. So a keystone species in general is a species that has a disproportionate effect on its ecosystem. And so sea otters can be a keystone species in the kelp forest ecosystem. Um, and this means, uh, well, there's a couple really important points in the sea otter sort of biology, physiology, ecology that are that that really explain why they're keystone species. So sea otters have um, we've already talked about this really dense, luxurious fur coat. And that's actually really kind of unique in the marine mammal world because um, when, when animals, when mammals went back into the ocean, and sea otters are really relatively young. So whales, um, the ancestral whales went back into the ocean about 50 million years ago. Um, ancestral seals and sea lions 20 to 25 million years ago. And then the ancestor of sea otters went back into the ocean between one and three million years ago. So they're really evolutionarily young. And so they actually lack a lot of these adaptations to have gone back into the marine environment that we see in whales and seals and sea lions. And so a big one is they lack a blubber layer. So that really um, thick fat layer for insulation because um, uh, as anyone that's been in cold water, you lose your body heat much more quickly to cold water um, versus the air. Um, so sea otters, instead of having that blubber layer, they have this really thick fur. But fur isn't exactly the best in a wet environment because it gets wet, it gets matted, it's hard to keep it clean and fluffed up with air. Um, so because sea otters lack this blubber layer, instead they have fur, they have really high metabolic rates. And this translates into them having to eat about 25% of their body weight in prey per day. So sea otters, I guess if we can think about maybe a 130-pound person, um, if you had the metabolism of a sea otter, you would have to eat, see if I can do the math, um, about maybe a little less than 20 pounds of food a day just to sustain yourself. And that's not taking into account like you being active or running or exercising or anything like that. That's just you breathing air and maintaining yourself. So sea otters have to eat an incredible amount of food every day just to maintain um, their body heat and to um, just survive in the, in the cold marine environment. So going back to keystone species, sea otters have to eat a lot of food, right? So um, in the kelp forest, and kelp is um, a really large plant, and um, it's important 
along the, the coastline here because it actually provides a lot of habitat for other species, other fish and other invertebrates. And so without the kelp forest, those species won't have any shelter, won't have protection. And then kelp also decreases wave action. So it also helps with um, erosion issues. So in the presence of sea otters, sea otters will eat a lot of invertebrates that eat kelp. And so a good example of that is that sea otters um, really like to eat sea urchins. And sea urchins really like to eat kelp. So if you have sea otters in the system, then they'll eat the urchins, and then that allows the kelp to grow. And if sea otters are not present, then that allows urchin populations to get very large, and, and urchins can eat kelp. Um, they can eat, eat down a kelp forest very, very quickly. They're also really ravenous herbivores. So if the kelp, or excuse me, if the urchin population um, gets out of control, then they tend to eat pretty much all the kelp. So there's none of that left. So no more protection for other fish, other invertebrates, increases wave action. And then it also changes the, um, the topography of the nearshore ecosystem. So if no kelp is there, then um, that tends to form what we call urchin barrens, where there's hardly any um, any any diversity of species there because it's just mostly rock, some coralline algae. So not a lot of fish, not a lot of invertebrates um, without the kelp there. And so that's, that's sort of the big key role of sea otters in California. Awesome. Really fascinating relationships there. Um, and so obviously that sort of places some additional importance and additional weight on figuring out the answer to this question that you posed, right? Of like, why isn't this southern sea otter population uh, sort of expanding into, you know, what was once uh, its natural range uh, at the speed that you would think it, it should, right? Mm -hmm. And so why don't you tell us a little bit about your research and like sort of what specific questions you were answering to try to figure out the answer to this larger question about sea otters? So my research focuses on sort of a component of looking at why the, our populations maybe um, are declining, are stable, aren't, aren't growing as much. Um, and it's important because sea otters, as mentioned before, are a threatened species. So I'm specifically looking at um, reproductive female mortality. So when I first started working with sea otters in 2012 as a sea otter tracker down in um, San Luis Obispo County, my supervisor would tell us, hey, you know, we've got a female with a large pup. Um, she may wean it soon. We want to make sure that we find her every day um, because there's a good chance that she may be in poor nutritional condition and she may disappear. She may die. Um, so we want to keep track of her. And, and then so to me, that just brought up the question, well, why does that happen? Um, we know it does because we're told to observe this. So why does it happen? And it seems like an important question because reproductive females are important in terms of increasing a population. So um, I really wanted to look at, well, okay, so we see that females get really skinny, um, maybe even emaciated towards the end of pup care and immediately after they wean their pup. And then really interestingly and sort of not that it doesn't seem like a, a really good adaptation, but sea otters actually mate immediately after they wean their pups. And this is when they're usually in their poorest nutritional condition. 
And weasel mating is not the most gentle activity and it occurs in the water. So that may also bring injury to the female, which may also increase her chances of infection, injury, or even mortality. So basically this all came up um, like, hey, this is really interesting. Our population is threatened. We've got reproductive age females dying, which seems like kind of commonly. So I want to study that. And there wasn't really a good definition of what's happening to these females during this time or even a, there was a description, but not really like, hey, let's talk about it. Let's put it in the literature. Let's name it something. So that's when um, I came up with the idea like, hey, let's put this out there. Let's give it a name. Um, let's make it official so that we can have a cause of mortality when we do our necropsies and then actually study, well, what is causing it? Is it having population level effects? Um, because it, again, it just seems important if I'm, if, you know, we're looking at a threatened population and reproductive age females are dying. The name that you came up with for this is, is end lactation syndrome or uh, ELS for short. So, I, I mean, how did you go about trying to, to study uh, this issue? So, um, end lactation syndrome was a term that was, has been thrown around for quite a few years. And it just, it's a really broad term just for, well, during the end of lactation period, which is about mm, the last month or two months of the weaning period through the last month to two months post weaning. Um, during that period, we call that the end of lactation period, we see females in this really poor nutritional condition where they're often emaciated and they may have um, things like nose wounds from mating, which may cause an infection. In terms of actually studying end lactation syndrome, um, I collaborated with California Fish and Wildlife, and we actually looked at a lot of um, case necropsy cases from the past. We looked at old case files, and we wanted to actually see, hey, can we figure out if any of these females died of end lactation syndrome because it hadn't really been used as a cause of mortality before. So we looked at um, specific uh, things, uh, notes from necropsy, like uh, what was happening uh, in her reproductive tract, was she lactating, um, and that all came uh, about in sort of a, another sort of sideways way where we were actually able to go through these past files and actually come up with a way to score reproductive stages looking at just a dead otter that we didn't have any observations on previously. Like it wasn't a study animal. It was just a sea otter that came up um, stranded on the beach and doing a necropsy looking at certain features like mammary glands, the reproductive tract, her nose. Um, we were actually able to tell like... Um, where she was, was, did she recently lactate? Did she recently give birth? Um, did she recently mate? Things like that, which then helped us actually come up with our case definition for end lactation syndrome, um, which is emaciation that is not attributable to a concurrent disease um, that occurs in a reproductively active female during the later part of the pup care period through early post weaning. So sort of in a nutshell, it is a female that is emaciated due to being reproductive due to lactation. So basically all of your research was done on sea otter carcasses. Exactly. Yeah. So for this um, end lactation paper, um, the initial one, all the 
all of our cases and all of our data came from um, case files dating back from 2005 through 2012 of reproductively active females that had stranded dead on the beach. My next question is like, how do you take this data that you've collected from dead sea otters and use it to sort of learn something about like the overall prevalence of end lactation syndrome within the larger population of southern sea otters? So about 40 to 50 percent of the sea otters that die actually show up on the beach as either, you know, live strands or, or have, have stranded already dead. So we we're estimating we pick up about half of all the sea otters that die within California. And then from those, um, we were able to look at, uh, we just took a subset um, where we had really good necropsy notes from 2005 to 2012. We looked at just the reproductive females because that's what we were interested in. Um, and then scored them with our reproductive stage scoring system and then looked at um, reasons for, uh, for mortality, for uh, causes of death. And so we were able to assign them looking at um, reproductive characteristics and then cause of death. Did they actually die from end lactation syndrome? So we had 108 females from 2005 to 2012 that re were reproductively active that stranded. And then of those, um, we did the case scoring and determined cause of death. And 56% of those females showed up as N-lactation cases. And that means that N-lactation was the primary or major contributing cause of death. So primary cause of death, that would mean that they definitely, N-lactation syndrome was the most significant driver of mortality or um a major cause of death would be it was in within the top three causes of mortality. It would definitely contributed to that sea otter's death. And so we saw this number over half of our females that washed up. Well, that's, that's a pretty big proportion. So I think it was safe to assume that in terms of population level effects, it may not be 50% of females out there that are that are still alive along our coast. But if we see that over half of the stranded females that come up um, have died because of ELS, it seems like it could have repercussions for um, population level um, dynamics. It definitely seems really significant. Um, I mean, how does the role of end lactation syndrome or ELS, how does it sort of compare to like other factors that are maybe contributing to sea otter mortality? So some other causes of mortality include um, heart disease, um, which is just a real general, like, well, sea otters have a lot of heart issues. Um, another big cause of mortality that is occurring um, in certain parts of the southern sea otter range is shark bites. And so it's we're pretty sure it's mostly all white sharks are coming up and um, white sharks are ambush exploratory bite, uh, predators. So they will ambush their prey from underneath and sea otters tend to float on the surface a lot. Um, so a, a white shark will come up, do an exploratory bite, so bite their prey, retreat, wait for it to bleed out or decide if they want to pursue it and eat it. Um, and in the past dozen or so years, shark mortality has really increased. And mostly we see that stranded sea otters come up shark bit. Um, and it doesn't really appear, we don't have much evidence that 
sharks are actually eating sea otters, but possibly they're mistaking them for their primary prey source, like the larger seals or sea lions, like elephant seals. Um, but instead, when they bite a sea otter, they get a mouthful of fur, and sea otters are kind of stinky like skunks. So then they decide, that's not what I wanted, and they move on. So we actually get them um, stranded on the beach fairly often now. Um, so shark bite mortality is a, is a big significant cause of death for our sea otters. Um, we talked about heart disease. They have a lot of infections um, in relation to various pollutants um, or other injuries such as, um, let's see, pollutants. Uh, other big ones are toxoplasmosis um, and uh, demoic acid toxicity um, are also big contributors for um, causes of death for sea otters in California. Clearly, there are sort of numerous factors affecting the mortality of sea otters, which grouped together, I'm sure, are accounting in large part for, you know, this issue that we talked about right at the beginning, which is the fact that, you know, sea otter populations don't seem to be uh, increasing at the rate that we would expect and could possibly even be declining in some areas. So, I mean, I guess the next question is like, you know, what can be done to help mitigate the impact of, of this issue that, that, you know, you're working on specifically and lactation syndrome? I think that's a really interesting question, but also a really hard question to maybe f to figure out what can we do to help? Um, in general, for sea otters, a big thing is humans and sea otters share share habitat, share home ranges. Um, we like to go to the beach. We like to scuba dive near shore. We like to fish near shore. We like to recreate, kayak, stand up paddleboard in the same areas that sea otters live. Um, and so the biggest thing in terms of us also sharing the coastline in the nearshore environment is we just need to be respectful of their habitat and their home. And so one of the big ones um, is decreasing the amount of human disturbance. So we talked about how sea otters are so energetically um, at their limits already. They have this really high metabolic rate. And then also something that I hadn't mentioned earlier is that most of the population in California, or at least the central part where a lot of the sea otters are, they are resource limited, which means that the population there is almost at carrying capacity and there aren't enough resources to uh, support any more otters in that area. And so if you've got a population or a species that is, um, requires a lot of food, has high metabolic rates, and then is already uh, resource limited, then any other um, disturbance or stress could really detrimentally affect them in terms of um, how they allocate their energy. And that's especially important if we're looking at reproduction. Because again, that's another really, really costly um, life history stage or life stage for sea otters. And we've talked about lactation, where lactation is the most costly portion of the reproductive cycle for any mammal. And then for sea otters with their high metabolic rate, you put lactation costs on top of that and resource limitation on top of that and any other stressors that they may have to experience, like a, kayak, a kayaker coming up every day and disturbing a mom who's sleeping with her pup or interrupts her foraging, that could incur really detrimental costs on, on her and her pup in terms of her being able to feed her pup, in terms of her being able to rest enough 
um, so that she can then forage for however much she needs to later on to support her pup or that she may have to move or she may not feel comfortable feeding in that area anymore if she becomes disturbed too much. So sort of in general, human disturbance is, I think, a really, really important thing that we can mitigate. Um, and there is a great program being that is um, just starting up called BC Otter Savvy that is promoting um, awareness to kayakers and other recreational users in the near shore area that have a lot of contact with sea otters. The very first thing you said up front is like how cute the sea otters are and like how cool it is to observe them, right? And I mean, obviously we want people to be able to go out and observe sea otters uh, doing their thing out on the coast because like both of us know, being able to observe wildlife in its natural habitat. I mean, that leads to people caring about those species and wanting to protect them, right? But you don't want to love them to death, right? Exactly, exactly. And that's a really fine line that, you know, and to try to figure out with the public because, yeah, you're, you're absolutely correct. We want the public to think that these are really charismatic animals worth the effort towards conservation to put their money to put their time to put um, you know to donate or to donate their you know money or time what have you to really saving and conserving the population and and again because they're keystone species that really means that they're conserving the kelp forest ecosystem that they're conserving that part of the coastline which you know that's sort of the bigger picture um, but then again yeah there's that fine line where you know, to get a photo of, of a sea otter, of a whale, of a dolphin, um, uh, a seal, you know, it's like everyone wants that, but it's, you, you know, taking the step back and really understanding like, oh, I'm actually, you know, that, that's, that could be disturbing them, especially if they have a pup. Um, what is, what is that actually doing? And, and really maybe putting yourself in that situation. If you had a stranger coming up to you while you were trying to feed your kid, you finally got him quieted down for a nap or you finally got him to eat, um, eat their food. And then all of a sudden someone comes up to you and really close and starts taking photos and starts circling you. How is that going to affect you? How is that going to affect your offspring? And then is that going to stress you out? Very likely. Um, and so I, I think one of the disconnects is like, okay, well, as people, we need to be able to think beyond that they're cute, they're fuzzy, they look like they're really playful and really think about, okay, well, if I like the coastline, if I like watching them, if I enjoy having them, you know, in, in basically my front yard or my backyard, then what can I do to keep them here? Are there any specific guidelines that you could point to that would maybe help people who do find themselves in, in that position where, you know, they're maybe out on a kayak and having an encounter with a sea otter or a group of sea otters? Like, is there a certain distance that they should stay from those sea otters? Or is there any behavior that they can be on the lookout for um, that might indicate that they're too close? Definitely. So um, I, sea otters and any other marine mammal... Um, they are federally protected in the United States. So yes, you can still observe them and enjoy them. But really the point here is that you don't want to affect their behavior. And so even if you are more than 100 feet or 100 meters away from them, um, certain things to look for with sea otters are, are they looking back at you? Because if they're looking at you, then they can see you. And did you notice a change in behavior? Were they sleeping before? Are they awake now? Are they fidgeting when they were asleep before? Did they stop 
doing whatever activity they were doing before you approached them. So if you see a change in behavior, that means you are disturbing them. That is a disturbance. Um, another example would be, um, so moms and pups that forage in an area and if a kayaker comes up and even inadvertently um, because the female may be diving, she may be scared and then decide to stop foraging. And that, of course, is very important for her to um, get enough food to sustain herself and then to sustain her pup. And if she's not comfortable um, because she was scared by a kayaker or a stand-up paddleboarder, then she may cease foraging or she may decide to move on to another place that doesn't have as good food and that may affect her later on in terms of her, um, her energetic intake of that day. So uh, what's next for you? Do you have plans to uh, continue studying sea otters? And if so, what sort of area of sea otter sort of biology are you going to be investigating next? Yeah, so um, I wrote this paper with Fish and California Fish and Wildlife before I began grad school. So that was sort of my my limbo period where I was unemployed and, and looking for something um, worthwhile to do. So luckily they, they took me in and, uh, and let me collaborate with them on this and lactation paper. And then I got into grad school at Sonoma State. And luckily my advisor is completely agreeable to me um, continuing studying sea otters, um, which isn't his study species. He mostly works with elephant seals. But um, what's great is that I'm able to sort of leap off take the next step from the end lactation paper and then funnel that into my research for my master's degree. So basically for my master's degree, I'm looking at the mechanism behind end lactation syndrome. So what is happening physiologically in these females during lactation that may then translate into end lactation syndrome mortality? So I'm taking samples this time from live sea otters. And so there's a great archive um, from various captures throughout the last few decades um, in cooperation with the Monterey Bay Aquarium, UC Davis, California Fish and Wildlife, USGS, UC Santa Cruz, among others, where we'll capture sea otters for um, various studies such as foraging studies, mom and pup studies, a lot of observational population type studies, and we'll take samples from them. And so I'm using blood samples from all these live captures, and I'm comparing lactating to non-lactating females. And here I want to see, well, is there a difference between these two groups in terms of a couple really important markers? So I'm looking at things that affect energy regulation, um, stress, oxidative stress, and immune function. So I'm looking at things like uh, stress hormones, like cortisol and corticosterone. Is there a difference between the lactating females and non-lactating females? And then things that we can sort of assess metabolic rate, like looking at thyroid hormones. Is there a difference between these two groups? Um, and then I want to look at, well, we know that females, they die of end lactation syndrome. So what's causing it? Is it something that's going on with their immune system? So now I'm looking at things that um, may cause inflammation. So is there, is there more inflammation in one group over the other? Um, is one group's immune system better than the other? Um, and we know that under times of stress, um, that immune system 
usually is compromised. And that's shown in several other studies with various other species. So does that hold true with sea otters? And then looking at things like oxidative stress. Well, oxidative stress is caused by, um, again, under stressful con uh, conditions, your body will make uh, things like hydrogen peroxide, which then is detrimental to cells, to proteins in your body, and even your DNA. So is that occurring in, in our lactating females? So looking at all these markers, essentially, for sea otter health, and then sort of going back to, well, okay, does that translate into N-lactation mortality? Sounds fascinating and really neat that you're able to sort of continue this line of research uh, in your master's program. I think we're definitely going to have to have you back on the show when you have some uh, additional results coming in from that to get an update from you. Excellent. Would be very happy to come back. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot, Sarah, for coming on the show and sharing uh, this perspective that you have on sea otter conservation. Uh, it was a really fascinating conversation. All right. Thank you very much. All right, that was our conversation with sea otter researcher Sarah Chin. I learned a lot about sea otters while chatting with Sarah. What a fascinating animal with a really interesting conservation story behind its presence along the central California coast. To learn more about Sarah's research and sea otters in general, you can check out the show notes page for this episode, which you'll find at wildlensinc.org EOC71. I'm going to take a quick moment here to remind everyone that you really can help us out by subscribing to our show on iTunes and leaving us an honest rating and review. It's been really cool to see this show's audience steadily expand over the past year and a half, and now we're starting to climb up that, that iTunes podcast charts uh, in the natural sciences category. So uh, leaving us a rating and a review really helps other people find the show um, and get tuned into these important conversations about global conservation issues. So you can search for Eyes on Conservation in the iTunes store or follow the link that we'll put up on the show notes page. Uh, and again, those show notes can be found at wildlensinc.org EOC71. This episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors. The Humidors.